Peace. Pray you are all well today. It's an honor to be here, and I want to thank you all so much for this invitation. This morning, I want to talk about being the main character. There's so much in our culture now compelling us into this belief that we are the star of the show, that somehow we're in our own version of the Truman Show, where there are cameras and a whole production team documenting our lives. If someone says something that truly astounds us, we may feel a need to break the fourth wall and look at the camera like, are you all seeing this too? <laughs> Find ourselves doing our best version of Jim from The Office or Gregory from Abbott Elementary. One of the expressions I hear Gen Z folks say that I'm really intrigued by is, do it for the plot. You'll see it in an Instagram or TikTok video comment. I don't know if it's made its way to Facebook yet. Give it some time. It'll, it'll, it'll get to Facebook soon. But this whole sense of do it for the plot. It's this encouragement, this motivation to keep things interesting, to make choices, to make decisions that will move the story forward. Go ahead. Do it for the plot. It makes me think about those novels I used to read back in elementary school where you could choose your protagonist's path. Some of you might remember this, where it said something like, if you want Susie to ring the doorbell, turn to page 45. If you want Susie to run back to town, choose page 77. But the question we must consider is whose plot is it? Who is writing our story? Is it even our story? Or are we merely a character in a larger story? Second Press, I've come to you this morning to offer a loving reminder that friends, we are not the main character. It's tough news in this time where we're in an age of peak vanity. I don't think since the mirror first came out have so many of us been so enamored with ourselves. <laughs> we can hear of news far and wide, international and domestic, tragedy or triumph, and we filter all of it through our own understanding of self, a celebrity, or iconic figure loses their lives and we immediately think about our attachment to them or how their art did or did not make you feel. Their real lives, the people who knew them, and not the character they played or the album they created, becomes secondary to what we consume. We've engaged ourselves in a self-perpetuating cycle of consumption. We're commodifying one another to the point where there is nothing we cannot or will not consume. Conversely, we engage in the privileged art of navel-gazing, so focused on what's going on 
in our world that we are conveniently unaffected and frankly disinterested in what's going on in other contexts. We find ourselves proudly uninformed. We engage in our echo chambers, joining the perverse choir where the only requirement is sharing the same ideology. And when we encounter one another, we listen for the key words that let us know if we're speaking with a member of the same echo chamber. And if our systems detect another ideology, we commence yelling past one another, leaving dissatisfied and convinced that they don't get it. We need an interruption. We need something to get us off of this Ferris wheel of self-indulgence. Something to open our eyes to the possibility of other perspectives. And in our text today, the young brother Elihu fills that role. Elihu was angry that Job's friends neither had an answer, nor did they prove Job wrong. See, Job is trying to make sense of the chaos unleashed in his life. Job finds himself wishing away his very own existence. Job wants an audience with God as it's only God who can explain his newfound calamity and only God that can release Job from it. Now, initially, at the beginning of the book, Job's friends, to give him credit, they get things right. Job 2 shows us that these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, when they see him from a distance, they can't even recognize his friend. He's been so beat down by life. And so they raise their voices and they weep loudly. They tear their robes. They throw dust in the air. They throw that dust on their heads. They sit with Job on the ground seven days and for seven nights. No one says a word because his suffering was that much. I'd go so far to say the only time his friends started to mess up was when they started talking. We see that this deep mourning, this sort of silent compassion is short-lived. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar spend the lion's share of this story trying to convince Job that clearly it must be his own wickedness that brings this kind of misfortune. Man, sometimes it's your own people, right? And the text shows us that right after all this is going on, and Job defends himself again and again, Elihu arrives and he just sort of sits there patiently waiting for the grown folks to figure it out. He doesn't barge immediately into the conversation. He's observing the dynamics. And while the scripture repeats again and again that he's angry, I want to take license to share that I think, moreover, Elihu's brokenhearted by two things in particular. He finds Tragedy and Job justifying himself 
rather than God, right? Joe spends a lot of time going through his highlights and resume, like, look how good a person I am. Like, why is this happening to me? But he's also brokenhearted and angered by the lack of answer <clears throat> from Job's friends. All this conviction and nothing to substantiate it with. Job's friends, in all their talking, all their posturing, cannot explain why Job is going through his suffering. They got the how sorted out. They're steadfast that Job must be wrong. They've dug their heels in. They've made up their minds. And the lady who tries to be deferential, he tries to just let the adults sort it out. He says, I let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But when the adults have got it twisted, thinking the point is to prove themselves right and not the point toward God, these are the ingredients for a crisis of leadership. I want us to pay attention to this today, church, as we consider the example that we are showing young people. It's so easy to criticize the youth. It's easy to not understand their frustration. But let's be honest and do an audit of the example that we set. Let's think about how do we solve conflict? How do we model in conflict resolution? How do we respond to crisis? Let's think about how deep are our wells of compassion. Let's be honest and ask, is it suffering when it shows up? Does suffering fuel our empathy or does it fuel our narcissism? Because young people are watching us. And even though they may not admit it, they need you to have the answers. Or at the very least, to be honest, when you don't have the answers. A lady whose frustration is a righteous indignation. An interrogation of Job's friends and their need to do all that talking when they're not going to solve a thing. Their self-righteous posture toward a friend in the midst of calamity. It's indicative of the sort of ineffective leadership and ineffective friendships that plague us in our time. Friends, I believe that we need to interrogate our love for one another. We need to interrogate our commitment to each other. Both the BGs and Drew Hill asked this poignant question, perhaps the question of our age. How deep is your love? Is your love only as deep as correction without compassion? Is your love as deep as sympathy with no regard for redirection? I mean, honestly, can you say that you love me, but you see me ruining myself and you do nothing? You see me suffering and you see my suffering as an invitation to self-importance. What does love look like? The good brother Cornell West reminds us that justice is what love looks like in public. 
But I want to encourage you today to consider justice both a political and personal aspiration. So don't reduce justice to a mere public concept. It's not just an ideal for outside. What does it look like inside, in the inner workings of your soul? Justice is a public reality, but it's rooted in private practice. It's rooted in doing right by those you love, doing right by your neighbor, doing right by folks you don't even like. See, we are an amalgamation of choices. Both the choices that we have made and the choices made on our behalf. Some of those choices were made before we were even a thought, yet their reverberation throughout time affects our existence. The choices affect our doing and our being. Consider your actions. Consider their effect. What do your actions point to? Is your life lived in order to please God, to demonstrate the goodness of God by how you treat people? Are you aiming to glorify God by the way that you live your life? Doing and being, they have such an interesting dynamic. I fear that too often we get so caught up in the doing We're enamored by the doing. We let the doing define us. We live in our capitalist society, enjoying the exploits that make us so comfortable. And we justify said exploitation as necessities that allow us to keep on doing. The doings. We occupy ourselves with becoming Our primary identity, our primary identity becomes found in the doing. The doing becomes our primary lens for existence. Friends, we are doing too much. What will it look like for you this week to focus on the being? Who are you? Who are you without the accomplishments? Who are you without the activities? Who are you without the itinerary? Now, before you panic, I want you to think about what God says about you. See, thanks be to God, God is the one who loved you long before you did anything when there was only being. God is the one who stands at the door of your heart and knocks. God is the one who knit you together. God is the one who imbued you with purpose. This same God who the Apostle Paul talks about and says, the one in whom we live, move, and have our being. Let this be the foundation of our self-understanding. Let God hold the compass for your life, providing direction, providing understanding, compelling you toward the margins, 
compelling you toward justice, compelling you toward mercy. After all, when we're doing it for the plot, you've got to remember that it's God who's written the script. And no matter what you're going through, no matter what's going on in the world, it is good to know, it is good to remember that there is a purpose for you being here in this time and space. You matter so much, not just for yourself, not just to accomplish and attain stuff, not to be a mere protagonist in some navel-gazing story. As the whalers put it, live for yourself and you will live in vain. Live for others and you will live again. You matter as a character that God is fashioning in God's story of love, redemption, and perseverance. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for these people. Help us to not lean onto our own understanding. Help us not to rush to judgment, to make up our mind, to make snap decisions about one another, letting bias and preconceived notions guide us. Let us be still. Let us be still and know that you are God. Let us be still and remember that you are the author and the finisher of our faith. Give us your peace. Bless us, not just in this space, but in every space that we occupy. Fill us with your love and the fruits of your spirit in such a way that it's contagious, such a way that it appeals to our neighbors, to strangers, to folks we don't even like too much. Show us how to be more loving. Show us how to be more kind. Show us how to live joyfully. We thank you for everything you're doing in our lives and through us. In your name we pray. Amen.